This is Kelly. This is Jen. This is Heather. And you're listening to Whiskey Cats. Yay! <laughs> In this episode of Whiskey Cats, we taste a bottle of Glendalock, some whiskey chocolate, a bourbon mayo, and learn a lot about wood. So pour yourself a dram and have a listen. drinking i believe it's pronounced glendalock <laughs> sorry i know you actually live with irishmen so i was not going to attempt any sort of accent but i did have to look up how it was pronounced because i knew it's not you know just the way an american would say that kind of came up with an accent yeah. well <laughs> technically i am irish <laughs> anyway so we heard about this. Actually, we heard about it first from uh, our pal Jamie, who lives in Boston, who uh, we've heard her great first whiskey story before yes. in one of, a very early, early episode, and we've turned her on to whiskey. Which I love. Yes. It's pretty great. So she was very proud of herself, and she went and bought this. She went to the store and bought some whiskey, and some guy was there um, giving out some tastings, and so she sent us a... a uh, Screenshot, oh, a screenshot, a, a, what do you call those, photos? Photos, <laughs> photo. In, in real life. Yeah, a real a real life image sort of thing. And she is like real, real life, hardcore Boston Irish. Nice. Like, <clears throat> and so I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, I've never seen that before. And then later we were looking at, so, uh, well, there will be uh, two Saturdays ago when you're listening to this, is um, <laughs> National uh, Whiskey Day. Day. No, World Whiskey Day. Oh, yeah. There we go. That makes more sense, yeah. since it's a Scottish thing, because it's whiskey without an E. And, uh, uh, oh, and so there, I was like, what? What does that matter? What are you talking about that? <laughs> Just another so, excuse to drink. So, our, no, our, our, because our, our, our local uh, ist, uh, DCist, uh, um, wrote, a, wrote a thing about whiskey cocktails and where to get them, and at the end said that, uh, you know, there's also this whiskey going around. It's only in limited markets. It's a new whiskey. And I was like, I've seen that label before. Where have I seen that? I'm like, oh, Jamie just sent that to us. <laughs> so I went to, uh, I was downtown. So I went to SNR Liquors, which is actually a great little liquor store in downtown DC. Um, I asked if they had it. They had, um, they did have it. They had the seven year and they had the 13 year. They also oh. had the, uh, also I'm going to need to look up how to say this, the uh, Poitin. P-O-I-T accent I-N. Hmm. Uh, we'll maybe discuss that briefly later. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, so he, the, the, the guy had nothing but good things to say about this. He was like, the 13 is really, um, almost like, you know, these are all single malt. He goes, the 13 is really like rich and peaty, the seven year. And like, he gave, he told me a few things, none of which I can remember now, but he was like, yeah, it's really interesting. The poi, the, the poitin is a whole other animal, but it is a whiskey. So I got the seven year. They actually have, um, they make a single grain double barrel as well, which I sort of mm -hmm. wish they'd had, if only because it would be a little bit cheaper. <laughs> uh, this ran 55 at the store, although as much as I love SNR, they totally overcharged me by like seven bucks. Uh -oh. So, <laughs> so it's 63 if you happen to go to the wrong liquor store. Oh, no. um, <clears throat> so these guys, in fact, I will not read this on air, but I will give this to you later, Jennifer, because they have a whole like geology section about yes. this valley where oh it's made. I can't wait. And apparently it was founded by St. Kevin, which I'm sorry, Catholics, but that is fucking <laughs> hysterical. It's like St. Bob. <laughs> And there's a monastery. <laughs> Think of all the Kevins we know. I, I know. picture them as saints. 
sorry. There's kind of a lot of amusement here. It's it's like you know how cheesy these backstories are. And they're yeah. so like precious. And this one is that is kind of precious, but I think it's a little bit self-aware, which I appreciate. So it's six dudes or five dudes, I think, from Wicklow and Dublin who decide to revive the heritage of craft distilling in Ireland because they said, you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, it used to be like over 200 craft distillers and then it really went down to just a handful and it's starting to burgeon up again just like it is everywhere in the world i guess right so these guys made this uh you know created this distillery they make whiskeys they make this uh poitins they actually make a couple of gins as well which i think it's funny they make a spring gin a summer gin an autumn gin <laughs> and a winter gin what <laughs> Well, I would say, you know, it's kind of... It's I don't like, see where I'm going with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like Green Hat. They also do expressions sort of every season. They do a winter and a summer. So what are the differences between a winter and a summer gin? Like, I, did, I did not write the, I, yeah, the gin yeah, notes down. They're, sorry. But if you go to glindalock.com... <laughs> <laughs> information for you there. People, I wish you could see her face when she says this. It's like the best. Oh my god. So let's talk about the color and the label a little bit. It's so pretty. It's like it's a really nice color in the bottle. It's it's, it's almost it's orangey. A, yeah, like a but it's a nice amber little yeah a little orangey. The label is beautifully dark green, almost emerald. Yes. If you would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> From the Emerald Isle. How interesting. <laughs> um, and so this is... Oh. Uh, on, on the label it says, Crafted in small batches in a traditional copper pot still aged in bourbon casks, then carefully cut with Wicklow Mountain water. And you'll appreciate this, Jen. Non-chill filtered for truer character. Ah, I do appreciate that. Glad we learned about chill filtering. Well, yeah. so it's not that it's not chill filtered. It's that it's filtered, but not while chilled. It's non-chill filtration. We use non-chill filtration. So okay. it is filtered. It is filtered, filtered, but not chilled. Yeah, whatever that means. But well, now says, I have to look. Where's my pen? I know. <laughs> it's just to maintain all the taste and character. So look up filtering chill, non- chill versus not. Non-chilled. <clears throat> Carry on. Uh, so, uh, obviously, this is our uh, seven-year. Um, like I said, they have the seven-year and the 13-year. Um, they have a whole ridiculous thing about making the whole world in seven days and blah, blah, blah. And then they go, then they go here at Glendalock Distillery. We're not, sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know. I just have to say it that way every time. <laughs> We're not superstitious. We find it brings bad luck. <laughs> so, is this on the label, there is a man... That with is his definitely arms Saint Kevin. Saint Kevin? Yeah. with a bird has yeah. to be Saint Kevin. And it what three, four stars around? What are these things? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe five, crosses. Five. Mm. Oh, they're, they're just maybe just. Oh, it says have a look on our bottle. You'll see seven silver crosses. So we're missing three of them. They're here. Uh, no, they're, no, they're, 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 they're there. Down. So there's seven churches in the Glendalock area. Oh, uh, okay. Where's the Glendalock Valley, actually. Is it like a valley. map then? That was forged by glacier. Oh, that whole part of the world is forged by a glacier. So. <laughs> sure. We can talk about that next time if you'd like. <laughs> no, that's why I'm giving it to you later so we don't have to talk about it. <laughs> I'm glad you respect my field so much. It's really nice. And actually, they actually use the word alluvial, so. Oh, that's like boring sedimentary geology. Oh, God. Lame. Fine. I'm going to bring it up to you. <laughs> no, I want to read it. I will read it. 
Okay, um, continue. All right, so that's, you know, that's about it. So want to taste okay. it? Yeah. So we do have a studio audience today, who is my mother, who's over there, who's not going to say anything. But I think once we bring some french fries over here, she's going to join us. Do you, would you like some whiskey? <laughs> we poured you one. She silently approaches. <laughs> <laughs> Mm-hmm. We heard about yeah. Irish coffees from her on the previous episode. That was delicious. Cheers. 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 Mm. Has a good nose. Something really specific that I can't. It's got a bit of sweetness to it. Or Westland wheel. I can't place like a spice. It's sweet. All right, I'm going to taste this. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. Like, I'm like trying to flavor. I'm sorry that I'm smelling so long. I'm trying to... I'm trying to place just, the smell and I can't see us here just huffing this whiskey. Mmm. <laughs> that's got a bit of a rich flavor to it right in the middle. It's rich in the front and then it burns my throat. Like, it might, I was about to say, oh, it's not very, oh. <laughs> there it is. It's very, um. I feel like I've cheated since I've read the tasting notes. Mm, I don't want to know yet. Yeah. It's very smooth. It's, um. Floral, but like sweet. Yeah, but not bourbon sweet. It's a no, whole different kind of. No, it's a of... different sweet, definitely. Not like mapley heavy like bourbon is. Mm-hmm. This is, it's sweet, but it's a lighter citrus maybe. I feel like floral and honestly, it makes me think of um, white sugar. Just like the tiniest, like... Not not the sweetness, but that there's like a flavor to white sugar mm-hmm. that like have you ever like just sat with it on your tongue? That's, Who hasn't? Yeah, <laughs> we, I used to like to, you know we did, in high school we would like I don't know why we were like obsessed with sugar packets sometimes when we would like sit up late at night and we would ha- eat like eat a sugar packet. Did you do this when you were in high school? <laughs> <laughs> so we'd go to the Bickfords, which I is mean, like we basically them pixie sticks, I guess. No. But... <laughs> we didn't want it flavored. We wanted straight up sugar. <laughs> so. At the Bickfords, which is like the IHOP of Massachusetts, um, <clears throat> we'd be there till like one in the morning drinking coffee, and then we would like for some reason just like eat straight sugar packets. I don't know what we were doing, but that flavor, wow, <laughs> is because what... you could do it at seventeen and never again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if I did that now, like no, yes, but seventeen, whatever. Uh, that flavor of like just having sugar on your tongue, but also but with the layer of floral and then the spice on my throat at the end. For sure. I really thought, I was a little worried I wasn't going to like this, the way that he was describing the 13 year as, as real scotch-like and peaty, mm. and that the 7 year would be like on its way to tasting like that, but I don't taste this that doesn't at taste all. any of that. <clears throat> no smoke, no peat to it. Nope. I think we might need some more whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so these have a little bit of um, water in them. Oh, thank you. Hmm. Very smooth nose. Yeah. Your nose is nice. I like it. I feel like it doesn't change it too much. Maybe yeah, a little bit more citrus. It almost just feels softer. Yeah. Or smells softer, you know. Taking a sip, I I like it with water, but I I, I would like it cold. I mm. feel like this would be really nice yeah. on the rocks with mm-hmm. like a cold bit of water sort of melting into it. I think it'd be it, lovely. It definitely mellows, mellows it out, but doesn't kill it. It doesn't kill the flavor. Yeah. No. I think it bumps up the floral notes a little. Yes. I agree. But I, I agree it would be really nice with a 
nice thick ice cube. Nice thick ice cube. It completely eliminates the mm-hmm. burn on my throat. Yes. Like, yeah. Completely uh-huh. gone. Which it's is interesting. Very smooth all the way down. I would we definitely drink this as an old fashioned. Oh, chilled yeah. with a little sugar and bitters. Yep. Yes. yep. Agreed. So you want to hear the tasting notes? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the nose, they say, uh, rich and sweet, a touch of cinnamon, which I think is maybe what you were trying to identify. Oh, that may be. Yes. <clears throat> and more than a hint of citrus. Uh, lemon infused with vanilla ice cream. I'm not sure why vanilla ice cream is different than like vanilla, vanilla and just cream. No, but or... there's a quality to it. I but can it's see more like that. a creamy, a creamy, a creamy vanilla. vanilla. I can see that. <laughs> there's a lot of Boston coming sorry. out right there. It's <laughs> the Irish whiskey because I was thinking about Bickford's. <laughs> and they said the taste is um, a silky, velvety, smooth palate uh, with returning to orange zest tones to the mm. fore with rich creme brulee, which I was so surprised that nobody said creme brulee after all the times I feel like we've tasted that in. But, but I wasn't do, here. No, I didn't taste not. it here. But you kept saying that white sugar, and I think that, I mean, that's what creme brulee is. Mm, but it's a different, but the creme brulee has a burntness to it. That the, that know, the white, sugar, white sugar. that's, you know. No, but they're too, to me, to my palate, they're completely different flavors. Completely different. Okay. Well, it is what it's made of. Interesting. <laughs> but it's bur- Okay, I'm not going to get into okay, this. So <laughs> rich creme brulee and dark chocolate notes. And with just enough cinnamon and white pepper spice to keep it interesting, um, followed by robust malt and oak-influenced flavors, almost butterscotch. Huh. I don't think any of those things to me. Butterscotch, maybe. Especially with the water. Maybe. It does make me, for the first time, want to try chocolate with the whiskey. (laughs) We could. We could. Because Heather's mom brought us some dark... Whiskey, dark chocolate truffles from Harrods from her most recent trip across the pond. She's a world traveler. That's mm-hmm. right. She just drove last night. Chocolates in hand. Um, would you like to try a piece of I kind of want to. Tracing a lot of things <clears throat> today. <laughs> also, while you're opening that, I just think this is funny. So they, they also describe the finish, which blah, blah, blah. Who cares what they say? But then it says, marry on the finish and stay an eternity. everything you'd expect from the perfect sipping whiskey it's nice oh my gosh it is nice (gasps) those look incredible i want like a corner of one of those yeah they're they're gonna have to be cut in half these are very large they're so pretty smell them you can smell the whiskey oh my god i'm really excited oh no but my glass Mm. is empty (laughs) how do we remedy that well i do Mm. Oh my god, that's amazing. Brings out the spice to me. I like around my lips when I eat this and take a sip. Oh man, that's really good together. I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as soon as you said it in the tasting notes, I was like, mm hmm. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have thought, like, you know, usually if you want chocolate, you drink wine or something. I try to be like, I'm gonna have a glass of whiskey and some chocolate. I am now. I don't know if it's because there's whiskey in the chocolate. <laughs> or that it's just delicious dark chocolate. They do pair very well together. Mm-hmm. Do, does it say what kind? I missed this. Yeah, those are good, Mom. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Mama Goss. <laughs> this is interesting. So I'm reading the back of this Herod's Whiskey Dark Chocolate Truffle container. 
And it's uh, among the many ingredients. Malt whiskey, 3%. Butter. Whiskey paste. And the paste. And then in parentheses, it says invert sugar, whiskey, dextrose, sucrose, flavorines, thickener, xanthan gum. And those British flavorings <laughs> with, the, with a U. <laughs> with a U. And then potassium sorbate. That's interesting. Oh my gosh, could I make whiskey paste and then like use it as a flavor? Yes. How do you make it into paste? Do it however you would like to do it. <laughs> second, second note of the night. Thank you. Make whiskey paste. Great. I will figure that out. And Brush that our teeth with it. Yeah. Have you made whiskey paste before? <laughs> no. That sounds amazing. Oh my god, you could make like a whi- Okay, I'm going to get off topic because <laughs> now I just want to make all the things. So, Jen, what did you make us? What is this? I made bourbon mayo from a recipe that Heather sent. I couldn't resist. She's like, someday we should eat this. I'm like, "Uh, we're (laughs) going to eat it the next time we record. (laughs) Which I feel like I need to credit the awesome account Burger Days. Amazing. um, Which I love and enjoy greatly. And they they posted, uh, I forget where it was, but it was some burger that had moonshine mayo on it. And I just like did like a record scratch at moonshine mayo. (laughs) And looked it up and <laughs> sent it to sent it to the ladies. So what? So what is the recipe? Okay, so the recipe is uh, two cups of mayo, it's which is why there's a lot of mayo. A quarter cup of bourbon, and it's so funny because in the recipe it's like gets stronger the longer it sits. Oh so be careful. But I made it exactly to spec so that we can through time sort of tweak it. So okay, two cups of mayo, quarter cup of. Uh, bourbon. I used Old Grandad because mm-hmm. solid. Old Grandad. And uh, teaspoon of lemon juice, three roasted garlics. Ooh. Make sure you read the roasted part before you start to make the mayo. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed it late and then I was like, oh, there's an extra half an hour to what I'm doing. Uh, salt and pepper to taste. And I feel like there's something else, but maybe that's it. Um, Sounds like a pretty solid recipe. Yeah. And you did take a photo, so we've got all the ingredients. I did. I did. Um, And then I brought you my very fancy Whole Foods frozen french fries of the plain and sweet potato variety. With which we're going to shovel the mayo as fast as we can into our face. Yes, let's do it. Mark, it's a go. (laughs) That's right. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I don't know if I'm getting a lot of the bourbon. I'm not getting a ton of it, but it's slightly there. May, let me shovel another fry into my yeah. face. and We just have to keep trying until we taste <laughs> the bourbon. Mm. I should get the roasted garlic. It's like a little... I get it's the like roasted garlic tangy. and there is, there's a tang of bourbon at the end of mm-hmm. it. That's good mayo. It's it very is good mayo. Mayo. I can taste the, the lemon mm-hmm. and the garlic. Mm. I want so, this on everything. I know. I was conservative mm-hmm. with the bourbon. We could also just add bourbon and... Whisk, and whisk it some more. But I'm pretty much just going to continue to eat this because it is good. And I wonder what the, you know, difference is. So they said they actually made it with moonshine, you know, really young. Or a spoon. Bourbon. <laughs> I'm sure we can I don't know basically why the French fry was so bad. I'm going to try a sweet potato. Oh, so you're saying they did this with moonshine? Mm. Well, so that burger. They said, mm. well, and maybe they they were just being cute with the name, mm-hmm. the alliteration. Ooh, this I mean, it seems like you could do it with any kind of whiskey or... I don't know if you'd want to do it with other spirits. 
Well, I think the sweetness, I think they're going for the balancing the sweetness of the bourbon with the garlic and stuff. I wonder if it would work Mm. as well with like a a rye or something. I don't know. There's a quarter cup in there? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, this isn't the whole batch, so this is like a ha- half of the batch. So we're kind of looking at a quarter of them. There's like a quarter well, plus a little, little. quarter plus a, plus a little bit of spillage because I'm like, I know you're telling me to be cautious. <laughs> I'm trying to stick to the recipe, but I'm going to call this a, a keeping quarter cup, an overflowing quarter cup. But I think I would put maybe a third of a cup. Mm. What will be interesting <clears throat> is when we taste it like tomorrow mm-hmm. and then three Uh-oh. days from now to or see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How does the bourbon flavor come out? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Saturday, that's a good idea. I mm-hmm. think there's some grilled mm-hmm. objects that we could put this on. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like the burger. I'm going to put it all over. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have burgers. You have to make me. another batch. Oh, so easy. I will make it every day. <laughs> well, there you go. Every day. And every day. We'll see how it- <laughs> <laughs> we can compare the aging. So we'll always have one young, one young batch of bourbon mayo. And then we'll have, like, the one week. Are we going to have... <laughs> I have to get a barrel for it. Yeah. A barrel of mayo. <laughs> 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 Asian cocktails in there? No, 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 no. Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> news news i have um mel linked to me this post on linkedin of all places um where he knows he knows the guy who who sort of wrote up this little anecdote um where he really wanted to take his friends to a local distillery in brooklyn and not king's county Because he really liked the whiskey and he thought, you know, friends in town, it'd be really great to go and visit and, um, you know, probably buy a couple bottles because he really liked the whiskey and, you know, experience. When you go to the distillery and do a tasting, you kind of are there for the experience. And then afterwards you buy the bottle to sort of commemorate the experience that you had. So, and so he sort of laid out the reasons why he wanted to go. And then also he said he really liked the story of this particular distillery and like how it was founded. It's relatively new in comparison to, you know, like Jameson or whatever Irish whiskeys we're currently talking about. Um, I won't do it. I won't do it. (laughs) Uh, So he was also not only drawn to the fact that he liked the taste of the whiskey, but it had a nice origin story. It was contemporary. It wasn't contrived, like a lot of the stuff that we're finding these days. There was no little drummer boy in there the was war. No, There was no poor blinded orphan. That's fun. Um, <laughs> poor Johnny. We've really, created, like, we've really expanded his narrative way beyond the intended story. Oh, so, <laughs> so the... Uh, the unfortunate thing was when they actually went to the distillery to get this experience and, you know, learn about the story and the history and taste the whiskey is that they just sort of got there and the people were like, oh, yeah, here's the whiskey. You can taste it. And then that was sort of it. There was no tour. There was no explanation. There was no welcome to our world. Let us indoctrinate you into our world. Hmm. And so he was very disappointed 
and realized afterwards that, you know, his friends were like, why did you drag us all the way out here for some whiskey tasting? And he, and he had to sort of like explain, well, you know, they have a really great story. Um, and in the, at the end, they, and they did not buy any bottles because they're like, because <laughs> they didn't have an experience. They didn't have yeah. an experience right. of why they actually went to the distillery. <clears throat> so, which I thought was very, a very interesting and telling story. So not necessarily about particularly whiskey, but that you need people to basically be indoctrinated to your brand and to your story and mm-hmm. to know it and love it and be able to evangelize it. And even if it is a little contrived, like we've said before, we like our whiskey charming. <laughs> and fast. <laughs> Some of us. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think it, it just brought up a couple of points that I think that's why a lot of brands or newer brands, we are seeing the contrived stories because we do like our whiskey charming. And so they're trying really hard to scramble for that for that market share to say, no, no, we're legitimate. We're authentic here's here's our here's our story even though a lot of the times those stories are very um, but it's so much more than just the story yeah. i mean i think the story is part of it and mm-hmm. and you know even like the you know this glenlock it's like theirs is all just history and good old saint kevin <laughs> but it's 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 more than just that it's it's you know it's the whole reason why we're doing a podcast is that right. there's a a whole history and culture and, and culture and you know there's cocktails to be made and there's different like really interesting things to taste like these people put a lot of time and literally. thought yeah literally and thought into what they're putting in a bottle like we're not just going to buy coke right which mm-hmm. like tastes the same and has the same formula and we don't need to have a tasting of it we just need to go to the store and buy it right it's supposed to be every, you know, you don't just go buy whiskey. You go buy a certain kind of whiskey. So what are you going to buy? Like, why would I buy this one over that one? I don't know. It means a lot to to have somebody sort of take the time to explain to you why you would drink. You know, even if you're not mm-hmm. going to go into like a contrived Johnny Drunk backstory, it's like, well, you know, just tell me like, so how was it made? Like you, you have a whole building here that we're coming to visit. Right. And- <laughs> well, and I think this is something that brewers have known for way longer time. So in my long drinking history, I've maybe been to like two distilleries, but I've probably been to 40 breweries. I mean, all over the country. And they know, they know how to do the story. Even if the story is just my, like my friend and I were in college together and we, we brewed in the basement and then we turned into this thing and we're just local hometown, whatever is that is enough of a story. Like, because they, they are there to tell you that story. Mm-hmm. It's enough to like draw you in. And I don't know, I wonder if it's because distillers opening their doors to actual like tastings and tours is a relatively new thing around here, maybe. Um, and that breweries have just been doing it for longer, so they know the game. I don't know, but I feel like the the breweries that I've been to ha- like completely have that, that backstory mm-hmm. and that selling point down. And that's like a whole part of their thing is like, mm-hmm. come drink a beer with me and let me tell you the story of how I made this beer. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's, it's interesting that that distillery hasn't figured that out. Cause we had that experience at Westland, you know, yeah, the, it was the, we, it was we the, heard that yeah. it was, it was very informative and he wanted to tell you all about his, his background and his history and like wanted you to taste each of the steps of the process with him. And, and also so, like you were there physically in that yeah. building and all the really interesting things they made beside whiskey in mm-hmm. that building. Right. Like the building itself had a history. I mean, there's right. more than even just the whiskey itself. It's right. a whole, you know. Well, this is interesting. Like I, you know, is it that, is it that they're new in the grand scheme of the culture to 
to communicating with people and not just like hanging out and secretly distilling their stuff or like I or was this just like a one a one off that they didn't have properly trained employees right I mean I you know how many that person was just having a bad day right right? (laughs) yeah Yeah. like you know but you don't sell anything that way so your bad day is very like how long have we been drinking whiskey and how many distilleries have you been to versus how many breweries or wineries that you've been to it's a small number very much so so is that because it's new? Is it because it didn't occur? I'm sure it would have occurred to us. It's not. I think it's. I think well, they don't. They haven't caught on. Maybe like they haven't caught I mean, on to the idea it, that you need that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just because. Because I'm trying to think. Like, where would I have gone? I mean, there's no. There's not a lot of craft distillers. I mean, because I guess you can go to like. First of all, a lot <clears throat> of it is actually in Kentucky. So yeah. you're not. You know, unless you're in Kentucky, you're not going to those. And a lot of them are. I mean, it, we kind of talked about this in an earlier episode, how a lot of them are, have been bought by the same company. Yeah. Or yeah. like umbrella organizations. So like, you know, you can go to Maker's Mark or what is it? Is it Kentucky Distilling? Yeah. That makes, you yeah. know, a whole slew of brands that we've had. Mm-hmm. So it seems a, almost a little bit like going to Disneyland, right? Like they mm-hmm. probably do have a story, but it's not nearly as charming because it's clearly like been vetted through corporate and... Right. <laughs> So, so they're, they're but just, at the they're same time, they could stores. like put you on the ride, and then you'd be totally fine going through. It's a small true, world true. of whiskey, and I mean, it is what you go there for. If you yeah. went to you know Maker's Mark and didn't get the big tour, and they were just like, "So here's our so, gift shop," you'd be like, "Well, oh, fuck you! I'm not right. gonna buy anything." Right. Right. <laughs> Although yeah. I don't even like, I don't even want the tour. Like, brew. I've been to enough breweries at this point that like I don't need. I know how beer is made. I don't need to see how you do it, but I still want. I want to like talk to the dude. Yeah. Who, mm-hmm. like, decides what recipes they're going to make and, mm-hmm. and, like, or well, at least hear, like, who that person is and what he wants to do. And but so, you do want to see the big barrels and stuff. I want to like, see it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, you got to be on Instagram. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all over it. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I'm sad they had a bad time also. Yeah. This makes yeah. me sad for them because maybe they'll be, like, like, the next time they see a distillery, they'll be like, oh, it's not worth going because they're lame, which is terrible. That makes me Especially sad. Especially in New York, where bourbon is the new thing. So we're here. <laughs> so we're here. So, are we ready for Science Corner? Beep, boop, beep, boop. <laughs> I want to circle back uh, to our discussion about wood barrels and what the wood actually does when it's when the bourbon is sitting in it, or any whiskey is sitting in it and aging. Um, we talked about this in episode four, Johnny Drum, at about 26 minutes in, I found exactly today. <laughs> Uh, and I used my terrible pillow analogy about how wood is porous, and <laughs> it was and a whole conversation. Lot of it was. It was good. It was. And, and I hope some of our readers have washed their pillows in the meantime. I hope so. Or, too. They're probably listeners, but yeah. <laughs> Job. I'm crossover. a print writer. <laughs> anyway, my point was that in that discussion was that on the micro scale, like you know, deep down. Uh, wood is really porous, and there are lots of little holes and surfaces to interact with whatever little baby whiskey that you put inside. And um, Heather actually found this article this week that has some great pictures that really demonstrate like how holy uh, wood can be. Not like St. Kevin. Not like no. St. Kevin. No. Oh, who, by the way, lived to 120. So the legend what? says... <laughs> I'm sure in 620 whatever that is totally likely. My God. Anyway, he gets better and better. Different holy. Um, 
But so during that during that discussion in that episode, we were like, "What does the wood actually do?" And Heather and I, I think, got into a lengthy discussion <laughs> about <laughs> where we agreed with each other angrily for ten minutes yeah. about whether the whiskey did something Vigorously. to the wood or the, or the wood did something to the whiskey. Anyway, um, I sort of dug into that a little bit, and I wanted to understand. So, so the key in any um, barrel aging is the char. And the char is the thing that releases whatever stuff you want from the barrel to get into the liquor. Because it basically, you know, the barrel is made of organic tree material. And those are, that's like lingons, they're called, and cellulose. So these little organic things. When you char it, it breaks those molecules up into small molecules, which makes them interact more easily with the liquor. So... Um, and those are the things that add the flavor. And when you heat the lingons, which are part of the, the wood, um, like when you char, it generates vanillin. And vanillin is the thing that gives the sweet flavor to bourbon. Hmm. So um, It's actually called vanillin? It is I mean, called vanillin. It's the, same, any... it's the same. Um, co- it's the same. It's a um, like family phenolic of... aldehyde. It's the same one that's in vanilla. Fascinating. Same thing. So it just happens to be the same compound. So is it like that's why so many have vanilla flavors, not because that has yeah. anything to do with what any sort of additive, whatever. No, it's, it's just the, comes straight out of it's the oak. Comes straight out of the oak. Wow, fascinating. It is fascinating. So it's the same thing. Phenolic aldehyde mm-hmm. comes out, and it, that's what imparts the sweet characteristic flavor to the bourbon. Um, so you know, we had that whole debate about whether the wood was additive to the whiskey, and the answer is yes. Um, and I learned a couple other things that I just wanted to point out while we're talking about wood and barrels. I'm so glad science could answer that and we couldn't just like, know. you know, <laughs> go around and around. I know. <laughs> out of, out of I nothing. <laughs> I think there are still if other... I imagine wood in my head, I think this is what would happen. <laughs> I think we can still do that. <laughs> I think we do. <laughs> um, okay, other notes that I thought were kind of cool when I was reading about this. So... Um, and this actually relate when you were talking about the seven versus the thirteen year of the Glen Glendalock. There you go. <laughs> um, okay, so so one third of the full effect of barrel aging happens in the first year of any aging. Wow, which That's kind of a makes lot. it makes sense because it's like you throw that whiskey in there and it's like it's going to do a ton of reacting really quite really fast, right? Um, at fifteen years. <laughs> 99.5% of the effects of aging are done. Wow. So <clears throat> stuff that's aged longer than 15 years in a barrel, it's like just getting that 0.5%. It's just waiting for you to just drink just it. waiting for you to drink it. What is the point, basically? And then you're just evaporating. At that How point. many whiskeys are over 15? I mean, I know, like, I think Johnny Walker makes one over 15, right? I don't know if there are. There are some 17, like Glenn Levitt, I think, makes a 17. Mm-hmm. A couple of scotches yeah. are 17. Like in this, in this, if you look, if you think about like per year, what the percentage is, that means nothing. Like the difference between a 17 and a 15 is nothing. And then, um, bourbon folks say that like eight years is kind of the magic number. And the number at eight years, the percentage is uh, 93%. Wow. Wow. So it's almost fully, you know, it's almost fully felt the effects of the aging by Hmm. eight years. Totally interesting. So like, so, so early on, it is. I was gonna, I was gonna say logarithmic, and I was like, they're gonna yell at me for being oh, scientific. Well, I'm um, only gonna say because I don't think what you were saying before was actually logarithmic. But okay. we can discuss anyway. that later. Um, so, I like how in my notes I say, 
folks say eight years equals the magic number, which, if math, 93%. <laughs> that's, that's how I did that in my head. Um, so... So 93%. So that's like what people say for the for, for bourbon. Okay, my last two notes for Science Corner about wood. Um, just some tree notes that they're usually cut when they are 25 feet tall and 3 feet in diameter. That is ideal barrel hmm. tree size. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I read a little bit about French versus American oak because I was like, well, does French oak impart different... Like, do they put in different, do they release more different mean, amounts of You mean phenolic? French as in actually imported from France or a type of French oak that's grown here? Oh, no. French oak, well, they may import it. It's grown in Europe. European okay. oak, basically. Okay. Um, European oak and American oak. Um, <clears throat> this more relates to wines, but I think um, because some of the whiskeys are aged in wine barrels that mm-hmm. started in Europe, it's appropriate. Um, American oak has a more intense and sweet flavor, usually imparts a, a sweeter flavor because it has more of these things called lactones in them, which are esters. So mm. it has its own esters that it imparts mm. and it has more of wow. them than French oak does for a reason that I did not figure out today. Um, French oak is usually a tighter grain also like why evolutionarily that happened. I don't know. Um, and the way French oak trees grow and are used, they only use 25% of the tree. Unlike American oak, which is more, they use more of the tree when they're making a barrel. Hmm. So they have to split. That is a French lot of oak. Yeah. So I don't know. They may go and like do amazing things with the rest of that tree. I don't know. Um, but it was interesting. And then I went down a rabbit hole of sherry casks and how the sherry, <laughs> the wine like builds up on the edges of the barrel before you put it. Like before you put the bourbon in it, and oh, but that's with cherry specifically. Yeah, yeah, that's um, why they're used. Yeah. You know, because it seems like a lot of them are finished in cherry casks. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's the specific, the the whatever residual stuff that sherry leaves on a barrel while it's aging is the kind of stuff that you want in whatever whiskey you're aging in it later, and when you do that, you get more of the sherry impact than the oak impact because remember that most of the effective aging happens in the first year and it takes all that time for it to like deal with all the sherry residue. Anyway, it was really interesting. That's what I learned about wood and barrels. And now I even more want to get us some barrels to do experiments. So oh, like yeah. we can have like in-person science corner. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Science corner live. Science corner live. <laughs> Would that yeah. involve us charring our own barrels? Playing with fire? Well, I will sort of discuss that, I think. (laughs) So I'm going to talk more about wood. If you don't already love wood, you're going to love it even more. I love wood. That's right. He doesn't love wood. (laughs) So first of all, I'd like to say that we're drinking this Glendalock now with a nice piece of ice, and it's delicious. It is delicious. So good. Okay, so I found this post, um, or this article from the Washington Post. Uh, They sent it out earlier this week. And at first, I read... The tweet. And I was like, oh, God, this again. So the title is Why Bourbon's Incredible Popularity Might Actually Be a Problem. And you're like, okay, we already like the whiskey guys already (laughs) talked about this two weeks ago. Give me a break. (laughs) But it's actually a whole different problem. So now it turns out that because bourbon, bourbon specifically, is in such demand that uh, the barrels, it's hard to keep up making the barrels. So as as we've discussed before, like bourbon has federal a federal law description of how it's made, right? It has to be 
uh, made of, of anything, but it has to be 51% corn mm-hmm. and any other grain. Uh, it has to be, uh, it doesn't have to be aged, but it has to be, or it has to, straight, so straight bourbon has to be aged two years. Two years. Um, and it has to be an oak, right? So, yes. Sorry. Oh, sorry. No, I'm talking about wood here. <laughs> so, and the other one is that it has to be in a new and unused white oak barrel. Right. So that means that every barrel that they put more bourbon in has to be a brand new barrel. So bourbon distillers are getting more and more barrels. And obviously there's a huge aftermarket. But so, you know, I'm reading this article and I think, you know, we all read this and they sort of say the same things that we've said, like bourbon drinking has jumped 70% between 2009 and 2013. It's gone up a lot. And they quote some lumber people here. And the thing is like barrels have to be made of like the staves, right, which are the planks that the <laughs> barrels are made of, have to be a certain high quality. Um, and that's really hard for the wood industry to, you know... No, but so like high quality, be, you mean like like, like the, not with lots of, lots of knots and like not moldy. Right. Like that, whatever. So and it has so, to be a healthy forest. Well, it's not just that. I mean, it's, it is it is healthy, but it has to be like the tree specifically. Mm-hmm. And so... Now, you talked earlier about, like, the waste of the tree, and what I think is that part of the tree is used for things like barrels, and then part of the tree is used for other things, like furniture, hardwood flooring, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so the thing is that this guy, so it says here that the demand of bourbon industry is that, so chopping down the trees is contingent on the ability to use all the wood, not just that which is fancy enough for bourbon barrels. So they'll chop down, like, the bourbon barrel, the bourbon people are like, I need that tree because that wood is, like, 20% of that wood is good enough. And they're like, well, we can't sell the rest of that tree because nobody, like, the housing industry isn't buying it. Mm. So they won't chop down the tree, right? That's basically what they're Mm, saying. However, it seems, I don't know, I'm I'm a little, like, skeptical on how actually true that is. But it's the Washington Post. It's paper of record. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So... It's more like it's kind of a good thing, bad thing. It's it's well, it's 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 good that it's um it's it's actually asking a lot of the lumber industry, which has been flagging since of the housing market. Mm-hmm. But I think our first reaction to that was, well, if we're gobbling up all this wood, our especially our bleeding liberal hearts are like, well, so are we just chopping down all the trees? Yeah, my you know? heart is bleeding. Yeah. So, so I went looking for some information on this, and I found this article by this guy. His name is. Doctor, pardon me, Tom Kimmerer, and he's the chief scientist at Venerable Trees, which is a nonprofit that's dedicated to conserving ancient trees in the bluegrass area in Kentucky. And he actually wrote this article, and it's based on research he's doing for a book, so I'll be very interested to read his book when it comes out. Yes. Uh, It actually says at the end, like, contact me for more information, so I did. I emailed him, and he emailed back, and he goes, you're actually the second person who's emailed me today on this article that I wrote in December last year. And I was like, (laughs) I guess I'm not the only one who read that Washington Post article. (laughs) So um, he said he was going to send it to me tomorrow, so he didn't have more information. But he's also doing a symposium on bourbon and climate change. What? Let's go. So I told him to keep me updated on that. Ooh. Wait, where? Like in the D.C. or? Um, he didn't say. Kentucky, uh, probably. Probably Kentucky. Yeah. I mean, road trip? Perhaps. <laughs> I told him to let me know. But anyway, so he wrote this whole article, which I think I thought was super fascinating. A little bit is on the history. Well, it's on um, what Jen was talking about, which is like how the wood actually affects the bourbon while it's in it. And in fact, it's, it, it even says that of all the things, you know, the time, the temperature, the, the kind of grain bill you use, mm-hmm. that it's actually the oak wood that's the most important for what your bourbon actually tastes like in the end. What's the article called? Oh, it's called Bourbon, Barrels, and Climate by Tom Kimmerer, and it was published in December 2014 on Planet Experts. Hmm. Okay. 
<clears throat> which I read. Yeah, I read their whole. I was like, who are these people? Because yeah. I was <laughs> a little skeptical. But they like they're a curated group of scientists, and you have to apply to be a writer there, and mm-hmm. and like you have to show that you have demonstrated expertise. It was interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. And this guy's got his PhD in forestry and biology, so would knows like to think stuff. that he knows his stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um. So you know, he was saying the oak is the most uh, important thing. I thought this was. I wrote a little precious, but exclamation point, because that's kind of great. He says, when you take a sip of bourbon, you're tasting the entire history of an oak tree. Oh, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love the thumbs oak up. Tree. <laughs> sorry that I'm drinking this. It's okay. This sorry, is not I'm bourbon. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Good point. So, so I won't go into this whole back history, but you should definitely, we'll link to this article and there's, um, about how, you know, when barrels were first made and of course, like we didn't have anything to store things in. So these barrels were, were made to store both like liquid and dry goods and how they were mostly made of red oak and white oak because that's what, that's what was in America. I mean, it was everywhere. It was, it was proliferating all over the place. So it turns out red oak, they found out very quickly does not hold liquids because of just the, it gets a little scientific tylosis, which I didn't look up. So it has like tylosis. It sort of like plugs the holes and whatever. It doesn't matter. We'll do that in another science <laughs> stuff corner. That, stuff that fills holes. Yeah. We're way like after mucus, science corner. Tree mucus. We'll call it tree mucus. Yum. That's why they don't use it. <laughs> so the red, oak, the, the red oak would be used to hold um, dry goods and they would use the white oak to hold liquid goods. And so white oak is really abundant in our forest and... Um, Oh, so they talk about cooperages, which were the barrel makers, right? And uh, this was fascinating. The barrels, so they have to be, the wood has to dry, they have to be sawn, they have to do all this stuff to it. The barrel process alone can take up to three years to make a barrel. For one barrel? Yeah. I guess you had to dry it out, although you think you could accelerate that. All right, that's interesting. Three years, jeez. I don't know if this is historical or current, but... um, it's just adding but to our I can't imagine shirt. the right. I, I mean, I think that's <laughs> industry to wait three years for one barrel. So, I mean, so if it's just the wood drying, yeah. there's. I mean, I would think there's like if it's manufacturing, I'm sure there's a million ways we can speed that up. If it's drying, there's probably like ways, but limited ways to speed that up. So, <laughs> anyway, so but I, I just because all of this bourbon and whiskey takes so long afterwards, mm-hmm. it's like man, it's like three years before the barrel even mm-hmm. got to the distillery. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so as they're, as they're making the barrel, it says early coopers would assemble the staves, then heat the inside of the barrel with fire to make the wood flexible enough to bend into place. The charring of the barrel was the result of the manufacturing process. Mm-hmm. It was only wow. later that they realized that the charring was flavoring the bourbon because they started shipping at places Whoa. and they're like, man, this tastes totally different now. All right. I take back what? everything that I said what? about the people who didn't understand how fire works like six episodes ago. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so what you're saying is delicious bourbon is a happy accident. Uh, that's, yeah. I think that's exactly what he's saying. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, so then, then he gets into the sustainability part, right? He goes, what is white oak sustainable? And he, you know, kind of says right here, not to spoil the whole segment, but he says the short answer <laughs> is that there is enough white oak for now, at least. So the rain, and we're kind of like getting into just like... <laughs> wood in america here but 
there, you know, there used to be white oak everywhere, like in Kentucky itself in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, it was just like there, there was an insatiable demand and it consumed the forest. It got down to 19% forested. And then after that sort of got state, like staved off a little bit, um, it came, they said it came roaring back. It's like, if you let white, white oak grow, it will grow everywhere. And so now it's about 50% forested, which actually surprised me that wow, Kentucky yeah. is 50% forest. That seems low to me. I don't know. I've oh, really? been to Kentucky. It's like all the same time. I've never yeah. been there. I picture it as like a vast Flat. dust land. <laughs> like, no, I feel like it's all trees. Huh. Oh, all right. Everywhere. 50% sounds low. Well, that's just me. So he says, more importantly, the growth of oak trees in our forest exceeds the harvest. However, then he really gets into um, government certification and like organizations that are really keeping track of the forests and how much they're used and how much they grow back. And so there's a program called the Forest Inventory and Analysis, and they are keeping track of this resource availability. However, and so white oak is sustainable if you do it through proper methods, but not everybody seems to care about the method. Mm. And right now, I think the point that he tries to make is that it's really consumer driven. It's like, are we demanding that you get, because you can get a certification that says I'm using only forestry methods, like I'm buying barrels you know, grown from forestry methods that encourage sustainability. But some of like other places do that, like, you know, lumber manufacturers and housing and things like like that. FSC certifications, things like that for like wood in general, not necessarily just barrels. Yeah. Yeah. And so he said he actually knows of no distillery that is using anybody that is certified. So even he says, he says makers mark is setting the standard. He says they're buying grain from near their plant in Bardstown using waste materials for energy and reducing their carbon footprint. And they have a sustainable forest management plan for their own property, but they don't even them, they don't use the certification process. And it's really just that like he he goes, when consumers begin requesting that their distillers buy barrels from places that are certified, like only then is it going to change. Wow. Wow. On the other hand, it doesn't seem that this particular industry is in, like, white oak is not on any kind of registry as being, you know, something that's being overforested. Yeah, endangered. So, I mean, it seems like all kind of good news, but just the way that. I would say, and especially like if if there's a market there, then it's not going to be endangered because foresters are going to want to continually grow it so they can sell it. One would hope. Yeah. Interesting. But so, like, what does that do to an ecosystem to just keep planting a bunch of white oak? Yeah, and he's got a couple maps on here okay. about that that have changed in the last hundred years on like where the white oak mm-hmm. is and how it's changed, and you know he he gets into a little more in depth than we will here, but I think that's I don't know it's inter- it's something to think about. It's like where yeah. you know yeah. it's all the sourcing, it's where your stuff comes from, and especially for something like bourbon that has to use like virgin materials every time that you make any of it. You have to think about that. And I think it's a, a, you know, just one more step in what we were talking about last time with like our hypothetical bourbon CSAs um, (laughs) and being more interested in the local form movement and that while we're talking about the grains and where the water comes from and everything that goes into the whiskey, it's just one more step of like, okay, then you have to think of the next thing that actually goes into it, which is the wood. So then where Mm -hmm. does the wood come from? And is that sustainably harvested? And are you asking for it? 
So, well, and how do you communicate? So, like, you can say we communicate that to the people who make the bourbon, and then how long does it take? You know, if it takes three years to make a barrel, so they're think about how far along they already are in their process. process, How long does it take to change something like that? It's interesting. Not that it should stop people from doing it, but it's like it's interesting to think about how long. And that's why it takes so long for farmers to switch over to being certified organic because it takes at least three years of um, changing over your fields for pesticides to get somewhat out of your fields, and that's why it takes a long time. So when I when I was reading about the American oak versus French oak, they were talking about for wines. A lot of the French oak, the people in Europe who are worried about um, using all, all of the French oak wood for wine, they started cutting them into chips and ate, like we've talked about with the space whiskey and like all these other, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Oh, Every week I read something about this. So they, there are some wineries who, to sort of conserve some of the wood, they're doing it by like, here's my giant vat of wine and I just chop up the wood and stick it in there and age it that way. I'd still like to know what the material, like, what is the vat then they're, that they're putting it in that, that has no reaction? Steel, probably. Steel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steel or glass are the only two things I can think of that they would yeah, use. Glass. I'm sure it's steel. Gla- a glass vat is a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds heavy and breakable. Yes. Um, so did you talk about any, about, um, so we alluded to that Maker's Mark own their own forests and own cooperage. It sounds like it. Yeah. Um, did you talk about who owns the majority of the forests that distillers are currently buying from? No. Mm, And that's actually, it's really, really well in my half day of looking for it. (laughs) Maybe there, you know, in fact, we would probably want to talk to this guy more about it after he's done his research. But I briefly looked at um, some of the government forestry. Well, it's not even government. I think it's maybe it's, it's sort of nonprofit and international um, forestry certification type things. And the information online is like nil. It's really, really hard to see. I mean, they'll tell you like how many acres in certain states are certified sustainable, but they don't tell you where they are or like, you know, who's using them or anything. Hmm. He says, well, I forget if he said or if I read it somewhere else that a lot of the land too is like, owned by people who aren't using it for anything, right? Like it's owned by somebody who owns like 80 acres in upstate New York and doesn't even live there. Right. So it's sort of like, well, that's, I guess, sustainable because nobody's cutting it down. But how do you, how do you add that into the world right. of sustainable? Right. And do they like lease it out <laughs> to anybody or do they lease it to someone specific? And that's interesting. Yeah. Huh. And of course, I mean, how, like, this is the first time that we've even come across this. So it's like, we're, we've never looked to see if, where they're getting their barrels from or, right. you know, nobody mentions that. They just mention white oak. They like, they mm-hmm. never mention anything elsewise about their barrels. So the Westland people, but they were sherry casks. They mentioned where they get theirs, but they didn't talk about where they got their. But that's, but, it, but that's not the first aging. That's just finishing because you yeah. can't age your bourbon. Well, are, they don't that, make bourbon. Oh, right. So but they, I mean, but we're talking about bourbon, right? So. Right. But it was still, they aged their, their American whiskey. You know, they're trying to do this. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. like there's an American whiskey other than bourbon movement or whatever they're into um so they do age everything in barrels and they do age them in white oak so Mm -hmm. i wonder all right i'm gonna investigate that i'm kind of curious it makes me want to look i want to pull all these bottles out and be like Mm -hmm. do you say (laughs) but i'm sure they don't i'm sure they don't yeah and i think it's no i don't think looking it's really hard to find i don't think on any of these labels it says Mm -mm. well that's really interesting yeah yeah, I thought it was, it's a really, like, you should really go and read this whole article, because I thought it was a totally fascinating look into the, the really, like, 
burgeoning beginnings of mm -hmm. your your bourbon. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so we really want to hear more from you guys. Um, you can hear more about our uh, episodes and escapades um, on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, we're uh, whiskey underscore cats. Also on Instagram? Same. Same. With the underscore. The underscore is very important. It's very important. It's very important. Yeah. But we also really want to hear your, your whiskey stories, your whiskey experience, your whiskey memories. Any whiskey something that involves you <laughs> and whiskey drinking. We want to hear it. We know you have stories and experiences and memories. Just pour a glass and dial that phone. Exactly. Call what I am now calling our whiskey hotline yes. at 202-760-2009 to record your story. And or, it's, a, it's a voicemail. It's not like somebody's going to pick up got, and be right. like, you know, interrogate you about your whiskey experiences. Right. You're going to so, leave us an awesome message. Right. And, then and we're if you mess up, there. you can just be like, I messed up. Let me call you back. Right. And we, then you can just call back. We couldn't answer the phone if we wanted to. No. <laughs> and you can, if you're afraid to talk, you can email us at whiskeycatspodcast at gmail.com. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. We're looking forward to it. Woo! <laughs> <laughs>